As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Edward Hyman joins us today. He is Vice Chairman at Evercore ISI. We're thrilled that he will have an extended conversation uh, with us. And yes, we'll get to the China call uh, here in a bit. Ed Hyman, thank you so much for your generous time uh, this morning. You say inflation is slowing significantly. David Rosenberg, you knew him at Merrill Lynch, says inflation is slowing significantly. It's on the good side. Do you see service sector inflation slowing? Yes, I do. So there's a hey, Tom. It's it's great to be on your program. You know, it's it's a terrific program, Lisa and John. I've said to all your guys, it's just wonderful. But uh, there's a PMI for services, and it's dropped uh, 20 points from 75 to 55. And there are plenty of services uh, that I think are slowing, particularly in the financial services area, insurance, etc. And but that's the key is to get the measure that Pal watches uh, to slow down. Uh, one of the big services is rents, and uh, I'm convinced they're going to slow dramatically and maybe even go negative for the shelter CPI. Uh, there are half a dozen measures of rents, uh, surveys of rents, and they've all slowed <coughs> significantly, uh, if not declined, over the past nine months. And they lead the shelter CPI uh, by about eight months. So I'm a couple of months late now on this uh, showing up. But uh, I think the shelter uh, is going to slow. Mm-hmm. And then before you ask it, wages are going to slow. If, if McKinsey is laying off people, what can you say? Well, can we make news here today? Is Evercore ISI laying off people? I mean, you know. <laughs> they, they, they may lay off me if inflation doesn't slow. Yeah, that's, uh, well, we've heard this in C.J. Lawrence and Julian Emanuel. Be very careful here with the tough guy, Ed Hyman. <laughs> Ed, I want to cut to the chase, which is the heritage is what you've done since C.J. Lawrence. I mean, it goes back to Wayne Angel. It's about monitoring M2. As you know, M2 is in disrepute let's say, over the last decade. Why are you following M2 and its collapse so carefully in your research note? So I met Milton Friedman when I was 23 years old. Uh, and in the 70s, uh, he was, became a rock star. And every time you had a bout of inflation, uh, money growth accelerated 10 15%. 
And so it was an easy connection uh, in that regard. Then getting to today, uh, bank deposits, uh, which are 85% of the money supply, are a practical way to track it every week. Uh, and they have declined significantly. They're down about 2% now. And they've declined $100 billion in the past two weeks. Uh, this is going back to the 1930s to have a situation like this. Now, we found over <clears throat> decades that the money supply might not have much of an impact uh, if it's in a normal range, say 5 to 10%. I think Margaret Thatcher found that out uh, when she was trying to gear monetary policy with Friedman uh, off of swings in the money supply. But last year, the money supply increased almost 30%. The year before that, government outlays increased 50%, and the Fed monetized it. Uh, and now uh, M2 last week was minus 3%, uh, which is a ominous uh, or significant decline. Oh. And it leads by one in two years. Uh, so it, uh, you, you can't see it on the... Uh, program you have this this morning, but it, it's it's coming, and I think it shows up in some of the slowdown of inflation readings we're seeing now, like container freight rates, well, you know, natural gas. This really speaks to the long and variable lags, Ed. This discussion around right. the tightening and the removal of accommodation and how long it's going to take before we start seeing it in the data. And as you say, you and many others have been surprised that we are not seeing it more and that you're even seeing a reacceleration in certain inflationary reads uh, in specific segments of the economy. What does long and variable lags look like in 2023 in an era of so many cross currents of different trends? One in two years. That's uh, it. That was uh, standard. It. We, we do a lot of uh, standard it for Milton Friedman. Uh, we've done uh, a lot of econometric work uh, on uh, global short rates. They leave by one in two years. And if you'll hang on for a second, in 1923, that's 1923, uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote a paper uh, that said the money supply leaves by 16 months. Uh, so uh, I've not been. Uh, I've been surprised, but I haven't been fighting the idea the economy is strong now because a year ago, Fed funds were zero. Zero. QE was in place. And the money supply was around 10%. Yeah. You you know, those are all now totally different. And so that will show up more toward the end of this year and on into 2024, I think. Until we see the long and variable lags actually play out, people are talking about a no landing scenario that we possibly could avoid any kind of recession or downturn or even a significant slowdown and end up reaccelerating into a new bull market. Do you push back against that and say, look, in a year, two years, we're going to see some sort of downturn? And the longer that you have faith in this no landing scenario, the more potentially fraught it could be. On the no landing part, uh, I mentioned long and variable lags, and they're pretty painful. Uh, Reinhard Rogoff wrote a piece in early <clears throat> 2009 criticizing people that had moved to the view that we would have no recession, that the housing weakness would be contained. Uh, and it's different this time, became very popular. And that's what's going to happen. That's what's happening right. now and will continue to happen. Uh, but uh, I I think judging yeah. by 
it will end up uh, creating a recession yeah. for the end of this year or into 2024. But it's going to be pretty painful. And the, the no landing story, I think, is looking at things right now. And right, right now, the economy is doing great. Well, you know, with Ed Hyman, folks, and we welcome all of you on radio and television, generous to be with us for this half hour. I do want to point out that there's a full econometric uh, display in his research note, including an R-squared of 68% on what short <laughs> rates are going to be doing. But to get out front, folks, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. Go to Evercore ISI to get the Ed Hyman, Dick Rippey, and the rest of them uh, religion, uh, if you will. Ed Hyman, I want you to speak to those younger they didn't read you at C.J. Lawrence. They barely know your research note at Evercore ISI. They've never faced this rate structure, this return to a real rate. There's a whole feeling life can't go on. Explain how life goes on if we come back to a legitimate interest rate regime. It seems to me, Tom, that we're already getting into an environment where life goes on uh, because the economy is doing so well right now. I know there are lags involved, uh, but the stock market, you know, is pretty uh, contemporaneous and they know that rates are high. And so I think we're, we're getting there, but it's a learning process. Uh, the Fed, I think, is doing a pretty good job of uh, communicating what their plans are. If I was them, I would pause and see what they've gotten done so far. Right. And then turns out they need to keep going. They can. It turns out they uh, should uh, continue to pause or cut rates. They can do, do that. Right. But I would pause now given how much water's under the bridge. Ed Hyman, as we speak to you, it is images of the President of the United States meeting with the Bucharest Nine. Of course, this historic moment for Eastern Europe after the President's trip to Ukraine. Ed Hyman, I say this with immense respect, and you remember the politics that we've all faced. How do you overlay the politics of the nation into what has been a multiple decade Hyman optimism? How do you take the challenges of the time of Jimmy Carter, fold them over to the time of Joe Biden, and overlay them on a belief in the American economy? Um, that's, that's too much for this morning. Uh, but, you know, I have a, a, a deep respect uh, for democracy, and I'm a conservative, uh, but I I see uh, a benefit in the back and forth that we have going on right now. I think it's too extreme, uh, but uh, it plays a role in our system. And so, at the moment, uh, I don't see it being uh, a terrible impediment. Uh, Powell is doing what he's doing. Uh, I don't know if you have seen it, but the federal outlays are scheduled to decline about 5% this year in 2023. Now, that they went up 50% in 2020, mm -hmm. so, let's, right. so let's, not, let's not celebrate too, too much. Uh, but it, it is a crazy world. Uh, the, the parts that I find most troubling, and I'm sure you do too, is the war situation and also the situation in China, which uh, I'm constructive on, uh, but they they definitely, well, they, they have a more problematic situation 
politically than we do. You stopped traffic here the last time you were on with an optimism on the China reopening. I believe you'd have adjusted real GDP. Where's your number right now on a China reopening? Is it still near 6%? We have six at the end of the, end of the year. Uh, it's a complicated situation. Uh, actually, a little more complicated than I expected. But we still think it's going to be very strong. They're opening up. And uh, I've, I've learned... Uh, either the hard way or the easy way, that that makes a very big difference. Uh, when we had the pandemic collapse, uh, and China did, I learned from China because their GDP was minus 50. And so I was estimating minus 50 for the U.S., which wasn't too far off. Uh, and then we had a, a big rebound, and GDP was something like 30. And that same in China and in the U.S. And so they have that dynamic coming on now as they reopen. And it seems to be pretty successful. Uh, they've gotten through the pandemic and a very big percentage of people, very big percentage of people have had uh, the virus. And so that they have a herd immunity going on, uh, you know, plus stimulus yeah. uh, working through the system. Uh, well, Ed, how much will that actually trickle into the rest of the global economy, given the increasing isolation of China, both deliberately for a more focus on nationalism versus also an isolation with respect to the fissures that we hear right now with China in Russia? Lisa, I think they'll I think they'll export. Uh, you know, once they get the factories going, uh, I think they'll uh, be an increased uh, source of exports. Just recently. They became the biggest exporter of uh, vehicles. And so I think they'll do that. I think they're going to push up commodity prices uh, like copper, uh, but then come in and push down uh, finished goods prices. I will say that I'm watching most closely the price of oil. And that is my uh, North Star as to how China is progressing right now. And uh, oil prices, which I look at on Bloomberg, frankly, all the time, uh, they're pretty quiet right now, around $75 for West Texas. And uh, so that tells me that uh, China hasn't gotten uh, ripping ahead yeah, so well, I think that's coming. I think oil prices will go up. This is incredibly important because a lot of people have come on this program, Ed, and said that the oil is incredibly muddied in terms of the price signal, given the fact that people are changing to renewables, given the fact that China has increased domestic production of wind, of solar, of even using coal or exporting, uh, importing some of the uh, materials from Australia. Are you saying that that's not true, that oil is the I, cleanest well, read on what's happening with China? I think that's a fair point. I think it's an excellent point. And uh, on the price of oil, uh, just to pick one commodity price, uh, if things like what you're mentioning uh, are true for a number of commodity prices, uh, it could feed into my strong view that inflation is going to be less than what people expect, not to mention the fact that the money supply is contracting. But uh, I think some of these uh, technological advances uh, that you mentioned could, you know, put downward pressure on some commodities. Now, a commodity like copper is right in the middle of the technology advances. You need the copper wires uh, to make the technologies work. 
but some other commodities, I mean, but watching natural gas, and you can see it made, making new lows both in Europe and in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And you can see uh, when that happens, it really helps economic uh, activity on a current basis, right. particularly in Europe. Uh, but I think it's also working a, a little bit here. I mean, Ed, I, I understand that, you know, once a week, maybe once a quarter, you read Julian Emanuel's work at Evercore ISI. But let's dovetail the stock market, the equity market, and ownership of American equities into your uh, economics. With all of this said, are we at a point of 1975 or maybe the great bull market of 1982 where corporations like they did then will adapt and adjust and prosper? Well, first, you know, I, I, we have an open office architecture. And I learned this from uh, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> this is when you were on uh, Park Avenue. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have, and so I'm uh, cursed with the fact that Julian sits, sits right next to me. So I have to put one up with the guy all the time. But uh, he, is, he is terrific and thanks to the world of all three of you. Uh, but uh, on uh, the current picture, uh, my view is that inflation is the key. Uh, the Fed is going to keep tightening uh, until either the economy slows or inflation slows significantly. And I, I think inflation is slowing more than the Fed thinks. And a year ago, if I may say, uh, I was pretty agitated uh, that transitory was the wrong idea. Inflation was going up everywhere. Every place I looked, it was going up. And the Fed kept saying transitory, and they kept rates at zero. And now uh, I see inflation coming down in most places. Unfortunately, it's not coming down in the most visible places that the Fed looks at, like the Consumer Price Index. Uh, or the PCE. Uh, but uh, as a student of this, I, I see it coming down in so many places uh, underneath the surface uh, in the real world, if you will. And uh, so I think inflation is going to keep coming down. No. I think it could undershoot the Fed's target at 2%. Ed Hyman, thank you so much for this half hour. Generous of you to be with us. Edward Hyman is with Evercore ISI. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
Let's talk about how stale these Fed minutes are. So that Fed meeting was at the start of February. Since then, when Chairman Powell said the disinflationary process has started, we've had payrolls at 517,000, unemployment at 3.4%, big jump in the ISM services index for the month of January, CPI not dropping as quickly as people hoped for, PPI delivering an upside surprise, retail sales with a three-handle, and then we got a first look at February with a PMI yesterday improving as well. Jeff, you joins us right now of BMY Mellon and Jeff, I guess I'm going to lead with a question I've already answered. Just how stale are these minutes? Uh, they are quite stale, not just in a domestic sense, but in the international sense as well. Look at what's going on you know, globally. You know, services, PMI, quite strong in the UK, uh, in the Eurozone, windfall for Jeremy Hunt, the uh, Chancellor there. So are we going to look at fiscal stimulus in uh, Europe? And that's one trade side, which the US is exposed to also than China. So now, not just domestic sides are strong for the US economy, you're looking at an external lift as well. Uh, so going back to a point made earlier, so higher rates, the price of good growth, why does it have to be a price? Why isn't it something to celebrate? And Jeff, you I look at this, and you're a student of history on this as well. OMG, rates higher, inflation, if not higher, at least inflation or disinflation sustained. And the, the basic simplistic thought is the world will come to an end as we know it, there will not be revenues. There will not be earnings. Life won't go on. And yet history says the complete opposite. How do we calm people down that life will go on? Well, I think uh, they're going to need to look at the margins. They're going to have to look at earnings. Uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we were spooked by job losses in the tech sector. Um, this talk about a margin recession, you know, a bit more so than top line. But again, let's just look at where underlying demand is. Look at VAT receipts in the UK and Europe. They are rising. People are spending. And on the continent, normally, where people are savers, they are starting to spend. They're seeing their energy bills starting to come down. They saved for very high energy bills, you know, oil above 100, but now it's not come to that. Uh, so maybe they can use in their purse strings again. So let's uh, look at the earnings upside surprises. That will probably calm people down. Jeff, if you take the John Farrow view of the world and you create your year ahead outlook on March 31st, how would you reshape it right now based on what people were going into the year feeling that there could be some sort of softness in the first half, then a real strength in the back half? Now people have adjusted to real weakness in the first, uh, real uh, strength in the first half and weakness in the second half. Where do you land? Uh, so I would still land on no recession, and uh, we were skeptical that there was going to be a chance of a heavy recession um, in the first place, and certainly at a higher level for longer, probably not in the camp of, oh, let's think about above 6% or something wild along those lines. Uh, is trend growth in the US or globally uh, higher than where we were 15 to 20 years ago? Absolutely not. So, you know, gravity will come to play a role at some point, but we have to land in a place where it's higher real rates or longer and asset allocation will have to follow. What I'm following right now also cash on the sidelines money has to be put at work where is it going to go i still don't think it's going to be in the dollar because most people own that already well jeff let's put it all together i said that barclays had said that higher yields higher rates are a price to pay for better growth and you said why is that a price that's something we should celebrate how do you celebrate it well, if you look at Europe, for example, if you look at a place like Switzerland, right, which has um, struggled with um, low rates um, for a long time, you know, we discussed this a couple of months ago, you know, suddenly the financial services industry there will be able to offer yields and to actually you know, keep money onshore as well. So this is going to change the flow dynamic, you know, whereby everyone blindly chasing yields, sometimes not of the dubious credit quality, I might add, you can now look uh, for the better gems out there, stay onshore in particular, these savings heavy economies, invest in domestic productivity because high yields means there are the higher returns domestically to generate that as well. So I would see this as a good thing. But as allocation, they need to just go with a new playbook. I'm a simple man. Does that mean by banks? 
Well, if we look at our, our iFlow custom flows, financials, both in emerging markets and developed markets, financials, the most sold sector globally, full stop, right? And that's what's telling me is we have high front-end yields, high funding costs, but there's no loan demand out there. That's the missing link, right? Um, going back to Tom likes to talk about the velocity of money. That has not picked up because people are still scared. But if we see the consumer demand and further down the line, industrial demand out there, then banks can start to lend. There will be a margin. But that is where the opportunity is going to be, given the amount of selling we've seen. Hey, Jeff, this was fun. As always, it's good to hatch up. Jeff, you there, a senior market strategist over at BMY Mellon. Drive it forward right now, and this is a joy. Amrita Sen, all of these strategists, folks, take a different view. And what I love about Amrita Sen, off of maybe uh, Jeff Curry and his microeconomics at Chicago, she really looks at the dynamics of supply and demand. Co-founder and head of research in energy aspects uh, in London. Amrita, just simple as I can, and I don't need a central theorem uh, lesson, but what's the correlation of your world right now to the stock and bond upset we're living? How does crude correlate? Great question, Tom. And as always, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, I mean, look, I think part of the problem is crude oil specific fundamentals are not particularly strong. We've built a ton of inventories. We've had the bad weather. Uh, we've obviously had, or we do have right now, a lot of refinery maintenance. And that's why right now crude is pretty much at the mercy of exactly like you're saying, the bonds and the equity markets. And this is why the six sessions we've seen that's been trending lower. And this is something we call for. Uh, just recently as well, that crude is probably going to be at the mercy of macro headlines. And by the way, now, even good news is bad news. You would think, oh, strong labor market in the U.S. is actually really bullish for gasoline demand. But guess what? No, now the fears are that means the Fed's going to raise interest rates. What does it mean for the future of the uh, U.S. economy? So it is very, very problematic for crude until fundamentals pick up. Well, when the fundamentals pick up, we do have China reopening. What is your x-axis on the China reopening? Are you waiting for May or are you waiting for May of 2024? No, I'd say May of this year. We've got a million barrels per day baked into our numbers of Chinese demand growth. I think the problem, of course, is that China, again, just coming out of the Lunar New Year holidays, that it too has maintenance. Look, we are hearing right now of potentially very low Chinese product exports coming out in March. We need to confirm that it's still uh, very early stages. will be the very first sign that, yes, domestic demand is, is strong. Um, it will take a little bit of time for this to percolate through. I would say right now the oil price is actually focusing and factoring in a Western recession, and it really hasn't factored in the China reopening. Well, how much does this really factor in the fact that any kind of China increase in usage will be funneled into some of the renewables, into a lot of domestic production, whether it's wind or solar, this is what we were talking about with Ed Morse, that that kind of substitution, for whatever reason, is diminishing the demand even in a stronger economic profile? Absolutely the case in the longer term, right? But right now, we know we've got more than a billion people um, who've been locked up for three years, and we are already seeing it in the jet fuel numbers. Just China's reopening alone can lead to 400,000 barrels per day of additional jet fuel demand. There is no renewables to replace that, right? So there is an enormous amount of pent-up demand. We've seen this in the West, and I don't want to complicate the story. The renewable story is absolutely there for the long term. EV sales in China are skyrocketing. We have that in the numbers. 
But that doesn't take away from the fact that gasoline and jet, which is basically used for mobility, we are already seeing very, very strong demand. People are going to fly and you are going to see some very strong demand numbers out of the region. So good news, bad news, it doesn't really matter what it is, but the macro has been uh, oil prices lower. That seems to be sort of the trend regardless. What's going to shift that and get prices above $100 a barrel like you expect? I think it ha we, A, we have to wait uh, really towards kind of second quarter, end of second quarter and into the second half of the year. Um, and for me, the fundamentals really have to tighten up. The stocks we've built will need to be drawn down, which we are expecting counter seasonally from the second quarter of this year, not before that. I think right now, and we've got a big gathering in London next week, all the traders and you know producers and consumers oh. are coming in for IE week. Um, I think you're going to get a lot of kind of talk around this as well. So I, I'd yeah. say after that, like you're really into Q2. Amrita, we really, the three of us, really look forward to seeing you there on an so, all-hydrocarbon week for Bloomberg. Oh, nice. Surveillance is, is, is well. It's on the list, is it? It is. Done. Okay. Deal. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is. <laughs> Do you know you can't get a drink at the oil week in London unless it has an umbrella in it? It's just the same as... Copper you know, Week or whatever it's called. It's like Copper Week, yeah. Mm. But they're spread out. LME Week. LME Can I get to this quote from Morgan Stanley Please. this morning? So they cut their forecasts for crude for 4Q and 2024 to about $95 a barrel from 110 And this was the quote, Amrita, from them. The new estimates reflect stronger demand, but also higher Russian supply. Now, there might be some people who aren't in this commodity market who would turn around and say, well, Russian supply, why has that affected the market? What is that all about? Look, we've also raised our Russia supply numbers because Russia is being able to place more barrels than we had initially expected. Again, par for kind of doing forecasts in an extremely uncertain world, that's absolutely fine. However, I go back to Chinese demand growing by a million barrels per day and SPR. We do not have a million barrels per day of SPR hitting the market. That's a two million barrels per day swing. So even if we assume Russian production is flat year on year, i.e. we don't lose any Russian production, we will lose some, but just assume we don't, it is still a much tighter market just from China and SPR alone. So that's the crude call. I just got a message from a Bloomberg subscriber and it just says, forget WTI, Natty, just wow. Yeah. Can we talk about natural gas just briefly, Amri? Yeah. So what's behind that move? Weather. I mean, like you said, you needed a meteorologist in terms of we, we need weather forecasters. But look, Europe got very lucky. And of course, in the US as well, just how warm it's been Jan, Feb and even our March forecasts have again raised just the amount of natural gas we are backing out as a result. We think natural gas prices will have to fall to about $1.75 before you wow. actually kick in shut-ins wow. in the US. So still a little bit more to go. Uh, but yeah, it has just been brutally warm. What a change, eh? Natural gas falling below two yeah. for the first time since 2020, and Amrita's looking for a further move lower. Amrita, this was great. Thank you. Amrita yeah, there for Energy Aspects. Thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. For Americans, this is important because Alancia now is our new renaissance at Stellantis. And the leadership there is Carlos Tavares. And as John Farrow grew up rooting for AC Milan and owning Alancia. Alancia Delta. Uh, Alancia Delta. Car. This is the design and character that makes the Pulsecos. Carlos Tavares joins us now, Chief Executive Officer at Stellantis. And thank you so much to inviting us at Behren for the Formula One. We really, really <laughs> appreciate <joking>. it. <laughs> I got to drive the forward conversation off of earnings and the good news of your company today, which is you're looking for a warm spot in 2026. You had a joint agreement with the Swiss they're moving on to Audi, fine. And the great mystery in Formula One is what Carlos Tavares is going to do to get into the new age of Formula One. Can you advance that story this morning, sir? What have you learned in the last couple of weeks, what your Alfa Romeo team will do? Well, first of all, uh, I would like to remind you that we have 14 brands. Of course, uh, Alfa Romeo is very warm to our hearts. Fantastic uh, brand equity, fantastic history. Uh, as you know, our motorsports uh, programs are focused on the 24 hours of Le Mans right now with the hybrid technology and the Peugeot brand and uh, also on the single-seater electric races with the DS Automobile and Maserati. Maserati mm -hmm. is now a contender of the world uh, EV uh, single-seaters uh, and that's where we are putting the focus. Off Romeo will come later. Off Romeo will have... Uh, certainly a motorsports program at one point in time, and we still have time to discuss this as, as we are still in Formula 1 for right. for some time, and uh, and then we will unveil the program How for Alfa Romeo, but it's too soon to unveil that and apologize for that. Okay, well, we can do it later in the interview. Carlos, help us here with how you bring the romance in your success of the, since 2014. How do you bring that over to EV? How do you bring Alfa Romeo and all you've done there over to electric vehicles? Well, that's very simple. Uh, actually, um, you just have to drive the cars. Um, if you drive the cars, if you experience the takeoff acceleration of an EV, if you experience the smooth ride and uh, the improvement on, uh, on the noise and vibration, if you experience the very low height of the center of gravity, to put it simply, an EV car is a better car. It also because it's a better car, uh, you can easily bring it to Alfa Romeo with extended technology to uh, ensure that the customer drive is even more exciting and pleasant. This is exactly what we are doing, is extended sportiness, for the Alfa Romeo brand with better acceleration, uh, with better drive, with a, a smoother ride. And by the way, this is exactly what we do uh, with e-muscle American cars with Dodge. We bring more muscle, we right. bring more uh, burnouts and more donuts uh, with the electric technology. It's what, just a better car. Right, Lisa, what's so good about this is you can drive down Central Park West in second gear in an EV Alpha, and the noise you can make with that 
it'll be just killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, killer. I, I'm, I'm not an expert in uh, the fake noises that you can create in your silent uh, EVs, but I do want to talk about the Ram and Dodge brands because we're talking about the U.S. And we're talking a lot just generally about margin pressure. And yet you recorded some of your biggest margins ever uh, with the sale of these types of vehicles in the U.S. And I'm wondering how long that can last, given that there's starting to be some pricing pressure on the margins. You are right to ask uh, that question. In fact, first of all, we should uh, just recognize that the employees of Stellantis uh, starting in North America have done a stellar job in 2022, facing all the external headwinds that they had to face. Now, to your question, in the near future, it's going to be uh, an exciting period where everybody is going to try to hold on to a significant pricing power despite the rebalancing between supply and demand, which is, of course, ongoing and uh, already there. So that rebalancing on supply and demand will put pressure on the pricing. But on the other side, because of the interest rates, we see some cooling in the economy that will bring more cost reduction on some of the raw materials, eventually starting with, uh, with steel, which means from one side, pricing power is going to be under pressure, but you have the technology, you have the appeal of the products, you have the new models that are coming in. And from the other side, you need to run fast in reducing the cost at a faster pace than the erosion of pricing power. That's going to be the name of the game for the next year. And uh, we are in the race. We are in that race. And I think that uh, we'll see within one year who is going to be the winner of that race. But uh, that's exactly how things unfold in front of us for the next quarters. Carlos, does that mean job cuts? At this stage, uh, the, the picture is about uh, how do you absorb uh, the uh, cost of electrification. You see, uh, you can see in many places of the world that uh, the customer has not yet totally recognized that EVs are a better car. And we see that when there are subsidies to erase the cost of electrification, then the customers buy EVs. As soon as you remove the subsidies, and you have this example in Germany, you have this example in Italy, then the consumers stop buying EVs because they are not affordable enough. So the challenge for the industry in the next uh, three to four years is to absorb the additional cost of electrification to protect affordability and make sure that middle classes can buy pure EVs uh, at an affordable price, which means that the transformation of the industry is just starting. In fact, we are live now transforming our company uh, in a way that needs to be reasonably deep because new technologies are in, software platforms, many electric components, autonomous vehicles, all of this costs a lot of money. And at the same time, you need to bring affordability to the middle classes, which means that if we do not do our homeworks in terms of productivity, then in that case, uh, you will not be able to compete because some of the new entrants will show you that uh, your cost competitiveness will not be enough. So do we need to make sure that we protect our companies by doing more cost competitiveness? I would say, of course, yes. I would like to remind you that Stellantis has a break-even point, which is the benchmark of the industry, as our break-even point is at 40% of revenues. 40%. You're, you're taking down the clock a little bit longer with a very long-winded answer. So can I ask it again with 40 seconds left? Does that mean job cuts? It means that we are not excluding anything 
from the task of absorbing the cost of electrification. Okay. Carlos, thanks for your time today. Just wonderful. Enjoyed that conversation. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Have a great day. Bye. Carlos Tavares of Stellantis. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.